The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Andrew Hunter. Andrew is the director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group, and a senior fellow for the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. That's a mouthful, Andrew. Wow, it is. It is. I'm glad you got through it all. Oh, thank you. Glad yeah. to be with you this morning. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Um, and we're going to talk about a number of different things. Hopefully, you'll have a wide ranging discussion of all things acquisition and, and programmatic at the Department of Defense. And I think let's let's just start with trying to get the big picture where the Department of Defense is in terms of acquisition trends for this year. So I'm just going to open up and what are the big trends, Andrew? Well, the the phrase that my colleagues and I have been using is to say that defense acquisition is at an inflection point. So what does that mean? It's kind of uh, balanced on the cusp of a big change. Uh, exactly what direction that change is going to go in is a little bit to be seen. We we have our ideas, but we think that change is going to be. But since it hasn't happened yet, uh, the skeptical individual would be well-versed to take our thoughts with a grain of salt uh, and and watch more. What do I mean by that? Um, 2015 for defense acquisition was the bottom of a big dive uh, coming off of the highs of the war years uh, in 2008-2009. Uh, I know we're still at war, but those were the peak years of of operations and also the peak years of spending money. And then folding in on top of that with the drawdown of operations was the Budget Control Act of 2011, which cut spending, and then, lo and behold, sequestration being triggered in 2013. So that was a long, steady dive for the defense acquisition system uh, down, uh, and contract spending fell by about roughly 30%. That's a big number. Um, huge number. Uh, yeah. I think if you're in industry, it, it pretty, you felt it. pretty painful. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, and that dive was really uneven across industry. So, uh, you know, it, it's hard to cite winners. No one really won during this period when you have a dive that big. But relatively speaking, some sectors did much better than others. Shipbuilding sector did reasonably well. Uh, and by shipbuilding, I don't just mean shipbuilding. I also mean ship maintenance. So kind of the ship, ship sure. industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, relatively speaking – did much better than, for example, land vehicles, where uh, I have described the fall as catastrophic, over 75% reduction. Uh, some of that is coming off of you know a real high because of war operations, purchasing $20 billion worth of MRAPs in a very short period of time in the late 2000s. Uh, and so you can kind of say, well, that was a very artificial high that we were coming off, and it's right. not surprising that we came down far. But uh, 75% is a huge drop, uh, no matter what high you're coming from. Yeah, that, that, uh, that hurts, right? It hurts. And yeah. it's well below historical averages where, where the Army and Marine Corps purchases of vehicles are today. So I think objectively, that sector is really struggling. So in 2015, we hit rock bottom and began what we're calling the bounce back. And, and we use that term somewhat advisedly because it's early yet to know, is this a bounce? Uh, which means we might head you know, back like to the down, down again yeah, yeah. Uh, relatively quickly, or is it a, you know, is it a recovery? Are we really going back to a normal 
uh, either historical average or above historical average for defense acquisition. Um, and, you know, the evidence is a little bit mixed. Uh, so that's why we call it an inflection point. Yeah, um, well, why is the uh, evidence so what, mixed on – is it mixed on whether it's going to be one of those – the ball is going to bounce down or is it going to, you know, continue the trajectory up? Well, I, I, it's mixed in two ways. Okay. Uh, first way is uh, just like the, the drawdown was very uneven in the different sectors of industry, the bounce back has been very uneven. Uh, and it has been very heavily driven first by products rather than services or R&D. Uh, and secondly, by aviation among products. Aviation has really seen uh, a huge recovery and a big increase. In fact, Is that F-35? F-35, F-18s yeah. uh, line being continued, uh, KC-46 tankers That's you know, right. really yes. heading into production. We're still buying KC-130Js. Uh, Army helicopter purchases have recovered somewhat. Aviation is really leading the way in this recovery. And other sectors, not so much. Uh, you know, shipbuilding is doing okay, uh, as you would expect with this administration's focus on building ships. Yes. Uh, but it's not skyrocketing. And so – And was it realistic? I know there's this goal of 355 battle – yeah, I think depending on which analysis you look at, you know, ships, we may get right. to 355 some point in the 2030s and might stay there for a couple of years before starting Coming to head down. down. So it's a slow process, right? Increasing right. the size of the Navy takes time because building ships takes time. Yeah. But so the fact that this recovery is so uh, aviation-focused and really focused on existing production lines uh, at a time when the national defense strategy says – we need to move in a different direction, prepare for great power competition. Now, that's not to say the platforms we're buying don't have a role to play in great power competition. I think they do. Um, but when you read the critical capabilities identified in the national defense strategy, things like hypersonics, things like artificial intelligence, you know, you don't necessarily think of a traditional fighter, bomber, uh, helicopter as the platform is going to deliver that, that new capability that we should be striving for. So there's a potential inflection here of is this this bounce back that we're seeing very aviation focused existing production lines is that real uh, or are we about to turn in a totally different direction towards a different set of systems in trying to figure this out right i mean it it seems i think where you're going is investments in technology and what i mean by that like you mentioned artificial intelligence cyber risk all those sorts of things i don't think Correct me if I'm wrong. People weren't focusing on that so much and making investments on that as we were in the middle of operations. But every day now, you hear the drumbeat of you know the cyber risk, the supply chain risk, all those type of things. Um, and those platforms are are dependent on that. And at the end of the day, aren't they? They're they're basically flying computers, right? Is that? Well, they are. And one of the things that's been really intriguing to me is the the variation in industrial strategies, uh, corporate strategies, I should say. So, you know, you see some companies in industry uh, kind of betting on this coming wave of technology, the digitization, the increasing computerization of everything. Right. And they're posturing themselves to be companies that supply that kind of capability. Other companies say, you know, we're really good at integrating and manufacturing, and that's where we're going to focus, and we're going to offload parts of the business uh, that may have relevance to some, you know, future world of artificial intelligence as a core capability, uh, but that right today are not high-margin businesses, and it's not clear to us how they become high-margin businesses, and so we're going to we're gonna shed those to others. So 
you know, during the drawdown, pretty much all the corporate strategies were the same. They were ruthlessly cutting costs. Uh, they were shedding capacity and infrastructure and real estate, and they were um, uh, trying to expand their overseas sales. That was that was the playbook. Everyone had the same playbook. Now there's real variation in the marketplace about folks who are pursuing a technology strategy, folks who are pursuing a margin strategy, folks who are pursuing a platform strategy. And, and to me, that's, I think, healthy that there are some diversity of strategies out there. It's a good sign. Uh, but some of them are likely to be more successful than others. And that's what we mean when uh, what we're talking about when I talk about this inflection point. Yeah, and your analysis has got all kinds of questions in my head. But one is about your description at the industrial base. What what I'm hearing you say is not just one thing, right? It's all those multiple different things. Whether it's you know, developing the artificial intelligence cyber, but at the same time being able to build things. And in this inflection point, you you talk about aviation moving forward. For this fiscal year, are those investments in that those other capabilities that those quote technological capabilities? Are you seeing that? Do you see that focus? Well, it's the great question mark about the budget that's you know to come, the yeah. next budget that's coming, uh, and that's driving a lot of the uncertainty right now because even the size of that budget is now very much in question with the uh, uh, edict from the president to, to cut, cut sixteen back. right, Did yeah, sixteen billion or something like that. Yep, that's right, right. from about seven hundred sixteen billion. Um, uh, down to about $700 billion, uh in the base budget. Uh, and there's various ways of calculating the size of it. But, you know, there's a potential for a significant reduction there. And where will that come from? Uh, you know, Deputy Secretary Shanahan has talked about the FY20 budget as being his masterpiece. It's really going to put in these new new investment focuses coming out of the defense strategy. And uh, the only way to do that, given that the increases last year were kind of in these aviation existing production sure, lines that sure. we talked about, uh, is is to make room for that by by paring back some of that production. Now, with this prospect that the budget itself may be coming down to an actual cut from this year's levels, how much of that new investment can possibly survive? Will they take all the cuts that they presumably were going to make to make room for it in the existing production lines but not give us the new uh, will they cut deeper in the existing production in order to, in order to achieve these cuts, but preserve the new investment? I think those are kind of the that's the cusp of this sure. change that we can't see yet. And we Andrew already up on the first break. Uh, my guest today is Andrew Hunter. He is the director of the Defense Industrial Incentives Group and senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And we're talking about the defense. This, you know, I guess sort of the state of defense budget acquisition, where we're headed. Um, and when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of the budget and start looking at some of the other things that are very interesting, whether it's cloud computing or artificial intelligence, cyber, all those sort of new challenges as well. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Today, my guest is Andrew Hunter. He is the director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group and a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, Andrew, um, when we took the break, we were talking about the bouncing ball of the budget, like whether we're bouncing. Now, we bounced up for a couple of years here. Are we going to start bouncing down? You know, What are the sort of long-term prospects for the budget and for the department and its industrial base. And first of all, I just, you know, it seems to me we can't find some stability here across the budget. And that uh, to me creates challenges for, you know, the government 
you know, managers and officers running the department. And it also creates huge challenges for the industrial base. I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I, I do want to emphasize, I think it creates particular challenges for the world of acquisition because acquisition is a fundamentally a planning long-term exercise. And so all of this uh, uncertainty and shifts of direction uh, really play havoc with things like uh, with doing acquisition, with doing multi-year contracts, and for the industrial base with forecasting and understanding where the market's likely to go. Uh, you know, this this bouncing ball analogy I think is a good one. Uh, and one thing I would say about it is, is right now these are very hard bounces. So we had a hard bounce up. This was a, a much faster bounce back from the trough than I anticipated. If you'd asked me, you know, in 2015, I was pretty confident that 16 would at least bottom out and uh, and would start a recovery. Uh, when we got the numbers for 2016 and they had jumped up 8%, we were uh, astonished that it had come back that fast. Yeah, uh, Cooled slightly in, in 17. It was about a 5% increase in contract spending, but still a quite robust growth. So that was a sharper bounce back than we expected. And now we're looking potentially at the idea that, uh, okay, that bounce back may stall out and we may even bounce back down again. The other thing I would say about these bounces is we've gotten into this pattern where it's kind of a two-year bounce uh, because we're getting these two-year budget deals. And so we get just enough certainty with a two-year budget deal to make a path, to pick a path for a two-year direction uh, until the next two-year crisis comes up. Uh, right. And and then we potentially head in a different direction, bounce the other way. So uh, you know that's better than a one year bounce, which we had there for a while in the depths of of the right. Disaster. The ball is bouncing, boom, 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 boom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we can get to like a three or four year bounce, that would probably be spectacular. Yeah. So your point about sort of strategic planning and you know with the changes in the budget making it difficult for the department to f- sort of. Do do that acquisition planning to where they want to be in two thousand, you know, twenty eight or whenever that is in terms of their force profile and capabilities. Frankly, right. So the the flip side of that is the industrial base that supports those efforts. And what's the sort of impact on the industrial base? And I know you've done a a, a great paper on acquisition trends in two thousand eighteen. Uh, that's available on your website. It is indeed. Yeah. Can you want to give the website? Well, it's uh, csis dot org. Uh, I I personally find the easiest way to get there is to Google CSIS acquisition trends and you'll get our report instantly. Trying to navigate the web page can be a little tricky, but I'm welcome to anyone to try. Right. There's that paper (laughs) and I know you've done some blogs on the industrial base. And one of the things you focus on is, you know, the real competition rate and, you know, capabilities and gaps and that sort of thing. So, you know, this bouncing ball, what's the impact on the industrial base? Well, we see some pretty negative trends. Uh, you know, I think the general perception is defense industry is doing great because defense stock prices have done okay, at least of the high-profile companies that everybody looks at. I don't think that's the right metric. Uh, and we did a study that's uh, been uh, a little over a year ago on the effects of sequestration. One of our findings was that actually there's 20% fewer vendors overall engaged in defense acquisition than there was before defense contracting declined. Uh, that's a pretty substantial reduction, I think, by any industry measure that you can contemplate. Uh, what does that mean? Yes, About one, out, on one out every five. 17,000 fewer contractors doing business with DOD than they were before the fall. A uh, complementary piece of evidence I would put to that is uh, the number of new companies that have not done business with DOD before doing business with DOD has fallen. It's fallen substantially. Now, it's been falling for reasons we don't fully understand for a very long period of time. It actually started to fall while defense contracting was still growing. 
uh, in the 2005-2006 timeframe, uh, new entrants peaked. Uh, and since then, they've been on a long, steady decline. But uh, it's very concerning. I mean, they've they've come down from uh, over 10,000 new entrants a year to about 1,500. So it's been a that's really a huge, dramatic Yeah, that's election. dramatic. So you're not seeing people drawn into the space, uh, which it seems to me is a clear sign of unhealth. Then the last signal that, that is very concerning is in the last two years, uh, for the first time in decades, a substantial fall on the rate of competition. You know, the last administration put a huge priority on trying to increase competition. And one of the great frustrations was it didn't really change at all. Uh, it was incredibly consistent that, uh, you know, roughly uh, half of contracts would see meaningful competition and about half didn't. Uh, and there's different ways to look at those numbers. That's the way we look at them. You know, effective yes. competition, two or more bids. Uh, and that was incredibly consistent, uh, notwithstanding the administration's strong efforts to try and raise competition up. Well, the last two years, though, it has fallen to 44%. So after two decades of almost complete invariance, it has fallen from 49 to 44% uh, in the space of two years. So that's a pretty sharp drop. And it says that even though uh, the overall spending is growing, the competitive nature of the market is not growing. It's declining. I mean, I think part of it is the bouncing ball, right? There's a lack business-like certainty, like to understand, you know, you know what the market is going to be and what the opportunity is. And if it's going to, it's changing year on and or whether it's year to year or every two years, that's hard to get a handle on. That's part of it, right? Is it fair to yeah, say? Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, you know, the economy has been doing well the last two years. So companies have other choices. They can engage yeah, in other markets. Right. And do you ascribe to, or subscribe, whatever the right word is, to the idea that the nature of government business, the quote complexity, the unique government requirements is a factor as well. Yes. Is it a growing factor? It is a factor. Uh, interestingly enough, one of the other wrinkles of our research is that small business has done okay during this period. Uh, so if by complexity we're worried about really small companies being squeezed out of the business, uh, the good news, if you want to call it that, is government policies designed to encourage and enable small businesses to compete in the federal government marketplace seem to fulfill that purpose, that small businesses do not perform uh, inherently worse over time than other businesses. Uh, they may not grow and become non-small at the rate that we might wish that they would, uh, but they are able to stay in the space. The people who get squeezed out by and large are the medium companies and the companies that are large but are not on the top tier. Uh, the market right now is pretty brutal for those companies. I'm at a loss because this was an issue just in commercial item acquisition back in the dark ages when I was in government, back in around the 2000s. And I can even remember you know, one of the things that um, uh, Congressman Davis at the at the time did, he did a, had a quick geo do a quick study of the entry points for medium-sized businesses. And I even had folks to ask me, what about a medium-sized you know, size standard for those type of companies? Is it that issue they're not big enough to and don't have as many resources, but they're not small, so there's not you know the focus on them? What what do you think it is? I don't know for sure, to be quite right. honest with you. Uh, I do have some quasi-educated guesses. Oh, I'd uh, love to hear them. <laughs> you know, I, I do think that there are a whole range of policies that uh, shape and protect the small business sector. So uh, those are effective. They may not achieve every objective we might want them to achieve. But they are achieving the objective that small companies are not performing markedly worse. In fact, they're 
they're performing better yeah. on the whole right. than other uh, kinds of companies in the business. What I think you're seeing with medium and large is is that they are competing with the biggest companies. You know, yeah. so in the last uh, two years, as we've had this bounce back, uh, the biggest companies have dramatically increased their market share, and they've done it at the expense of uh, mostly the large companies, and to a lesser extent, medium firms. Uh, they probably have a little less direct competition with the medium firms, um, but. Uh, with the large companies, they are direct competitors, and they are winning that competition right now. Yeah. Uh, and they're winning it in part, I think, because of the way that the bounce back has happened. It's been very congressionally driven. Uh, you know, Congress increased the budget in 2016. Not really the Department of Defense did not lead that increase. That was a, a push that came from Congress. Yeah. In 2017, the Trump administration ultimately signed up to a budget increase, but it was Congress that really determined the shape of that. It didn't come from DOD. What does that mean? Well, Congress puts money in right? the places where, well, and where they know to put money, yeah. uh, and in their constituencies. Um, yeah. But you know, it's a lot easier to add F-18s and F-35s than to add money that filters its way down to parts suppliers and right. uh, you know yeah. companies producing IT. Right. And um, Andrew, we have to take our next break. My guest today is Andrew Hunter. He's uh, the director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group and a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. When we come back, we'll start talking about some of those things that we want the industrial base, excuse me, to do, like cloud or artificial intelligence, cyber, some of these cutting-edge new things, um, relatively cutting-edge new. I mean, they've been around for a while. Uh, You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. My guest is Andrew Hunter. He is the director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group and a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We're talking about the acquisition sort of trends, challenges, opportunities uh, facing the Department of Defense. We spent a lot of time talking about the bouncing ball of the budget. Uh, talk a little bit about the industrial base and you know continuing that sort of on that theme of the industrial base. Right now, um, and you've mentioned it in both segments, uh, just the idea of what you know where technology is going. You know, cloud computing, there's a lot of focus on the in the department on that right now, major acquisitions. There's cyber and supply chain risk that the department is and Department of Homeland Security are wrestling with and tackling. And there's artificial intelligence. And those are challenges and opportunities. And I want to get your let's start with cloud computing, Andrew. Well, you know, I think there is a signal in the fact that there's this incredible controversy right now about, in the Department of Defense at least, about acquiring cloud and how to acquire cloud and the structure of the industry for providing cloud services to the government. And uh, it tells me that there's something important happening. Uh, you know, controversy in Congress happen for a variety of reasons. The controversy over our cloud is because I think something important and fundamental is happening there. Um, and I think it's an interesting signal in another way, which is we've been asking ourselves for some years now, uh, not least when... Uh, Dr. Carter began the outreach to the tech sector that uh, was kind of exemplified by the DIUX, creation of DIUX, was whether the tech industry would want to play or whether the government market was such an unattractive market that nobody would pay any attention to it. And uh, what I think we're seeing emerging with the cloud controversy and with some of the controversies over artificial intelligence is what seems to me clear evidence that these companies are interested in, in engaging in the commercial marketplace. As much attention as it's gotten that Google has said, we're not going to participate in some of these government programs because we're concerned that they're not in accord with our ethics, our code of ethics, 
there's there's five other companies that have come forth and said we absolutely are going to participate. It's core to our business to be engaged in this undertaking, and I think that gets less attention than the one company yeah. that pulled out. Right, um, and that that you know huge interest or like well it is you know like the five for one kind of concept let's not call it huge interest but it seems to me that does to your point demonstrate it's a big deal you know the department has lots and lots of data right there's going to be lots and lots of opportunities to support via cloud but do i do also see it as you know the department is sort of a leader for the entire federal government do you see that as like you know if you are the department of defense cloud provider or amongst their cloud providers that gives you a certain level of credibility i know you know where the commercial market is and how it's divided up right but th- there's something about being you know supporting the department of defense for some of these companies that makes a difference and also can help them in their own capabilities on the commercial side as well yeah i mean i think it's it's partly volume uh dod does 70 percent of all contract spending for the federal government so it's the uh it's the 70 percent gorilla in the room uh, so there's that. You know, if you can if you can really succeed in that market, that's a huge piece. Of course, we should keep in mind there is no actual monolith called DoD. Most of these decisions <laughs> are being made by you know Navy, Air Force, right. Army, uh, and some government other government agencies. So it's not like you're going to capture that whole market with one contract. And I think that's obviously one of the controversies about Jedi, where you know industry firms have said whoever wins this contract is going to rule the whole market and. Dude essentially has pushed back saying it's just one contract among many that we have. Yes, it's an important one. It's meant to be, but it's not the it's not the whole ball of wax. Uh, but there's another way that I think it matters uh, being with DUD, and it's because the kinds of applications and missions DUD engages in are high value, uh, and they're they're pushing the envelope. So even though it's true that you know when you look at things like cloud and to artificial intelligence as well. We know the private sector is in the lead in many ways and delivering those capabilities. Uh, but the private sector is in the lead doing the things that the private sector is interested in doing with those capabilities. They're not in the lead necessarily or logically uh, without effort in doing the kinds of things that governments and the Department of Defense need to do. Uh, and it's a pretty big market. And some of those applications are applications that have implications for the commercial world down the line. So, yeah. you know, even though the private sector is doing more R&D than the government and is taking the lead on many of these technologies in a way we may not have seen 30 years ago, the government role is still critical. It's still, uh, in many ways, defining the cutting edge, not of everything, but of certain critical things that are government and Department of Defense type missions. And so I think that's one reason why that's that government space remains interesting and compelling for a lot of these firms. Yeah, it's the government unique requirements. People have to come up with new capabilities to meet those based on their commercial and those and what the applications, to your point, what they may or may not be in the rest of your business. It's it's an opportunity. You're learning from both sides of of the marketplace. Yeah, you know, so I'm just going to throw cyber. You know, and what, what your thoughts on that in the department's opportunities, challenges? Well, uh, and, you know, where cyber is most uh, significant in my work is on the issue of cybersecurity standards for industry. You know, what is the government asking them to do? What kind of security is it asking them to provide to the systems they're producing and to their internal uh, data and business systems uh, that uh, have house or have access to Department of Defense assets? Uh, and this is this is an interesting one. You know, uh, Deputy Secretary Shanahan was out in public uh, about a month, month and a half ago and said, 
we will demand a high standard or cybersecurity for anyone who's going to work with us. And by the way, that standard is a minimum standard. It's an expectation that must be met. Uh, and we're not interested in paying more to get it. It's going to be something that industry just needs to do as part of its routine uh, doing business with the government. It's just got to be there. Uh, we're not interested in paying for more for it. Well, you know, the deputy secretary is a former guy from industry, so he knows this stuff is not free. Right. And he fully understands that there's a cost to that. And guess who's going to pay that cost? It is ultimately going to be the government that's going to pay that cost. Um, so, uh, you know, I think he was trying to set the bar high and and force people to kind of jump for it and reach for it instead of just trying to do the bare minimum uh, that they can get away with. Uh, but ultimately, the government is going to pay for that. So this is a tricky area because the government is is going to have to find a balance for its demand for security for the cost of that security. And it's pretty clear uh, that the government's demand is higher than what uh, the private sector left to its own devices would really deliver. You know, notwithstanding that there are sensitive areas, you know, like banking and others that that yes, do have a need for, mm-hmm. for a high standard. Uh, but I think at least the evidence to date suggests the government standard is a little bit higher and uh, it's going to, to some respect, force industry to come up to that standard. Right. And, and, and I guess the other thing, too, about the government that you think about is the Internet of Things and all the things that plug into the network that a bank doesn't operate hospitals, right? So and the hospitals have equipment that plugs medical equipment that plugs into the network that, you know, all that, when you think of all the different, you know, the logistics operations, all those different things that commercial firms produce that different elements do, the government or at least the Department of Defense with all its multiple different pieces have in play. That's going to be a huge challenge. Well, and so I think what you're pointing out is, is a, there's another trade-off that I didn't really deal with, which is the trade-off in capability. Uh, you know, after after nine eleven, everyone the critique of nine eleven was we didn't connect the dots. So, and it was because we were stovepiped, and nobody knew. Uh, various intelligence agencies didn't have the information the other ones had. We weren't sharing it, so we went to share data as broadly as possible across the IC. Then Edward Snowden comes along, and we find out, hey, how does this one analyst out in Hawaii have access to literally almost every secret we own and is able to steal a bunch of it? It's because we connected the dots, or we wanted to connect the dots. So then we went back to, okay, we need to put more limits on what individual people can get access to. So that's that trade-off that says if I really want – if I'm just focused on the the greatest capability, delivering – uh, the best information system I can, I'm going to share information as much as I can because there's tremendous power in that network effects. Yes. Uh, Efficiencies. Yeah. It's a nightmare from a security right. perspective. Right. So there's that trade off too. Yeah. And we're already up at the break, Andrew. So when we come back, we'll spend, spend the last segment talking about artificial intelligence and the recent report that, that you authored with some of your uh, peers at uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My guest today is Andrew Hunter. He is the Director of Defense Industrial Engineers Group and a Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. My guest today is Andrew Hunter. He is Director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group and a Senior Fellow at the Center for for strategic and international studies, and I got through that. And throughout, I've got one more time to say that, Andrew. So uh, <laughs> keep let's keep our fingers crossed. I get it all right. Um, but this say uh, this segment, we're going to talk about uh, a lot about artificial intelligence, and maybe save the last minute or two to get. You can give a couple recommendations or things you think um, the department or 
policymakers should consider uh, facing all these different things we've talked about today. Um, so you just this month in November, or just in November, you issued um, uh, a report, Artificial Intelligence and National Security, the Importance of an AI Ecosystem. Um, it's about 78 pages. It's got some great information in it. It's got a series of findings and recommendations. I'm just going to, Andrew, tell us about this report and what are some of the key takeaways people need to bear and, and where they can find it and take a look at it. Yeah, well, well, thanks for asking about that. Uh, this is a study we put out a couple weeks ago. Been working on for about a year, uh, and we are we're very pleased with what we were able to um, mine from our uh, workshops that we use artificial intelligence to do it. Experts. Right. <laughs> uh, we used uh, mostly the intelligence in our brains for very writing good. the report, <laughs> uh, and hopefully that'll have to be good enough for yeah. now. Uh, future reports maybe can be <laughs> yes. enabled by AI. Uh, you know, the focus of this report, it was a pretty broad, broad-looking report. Uh, so it was a broad look, not a deep dive. Um, and the the point of it was to assess what's going to be significant about AI for national security in the next five to ten years. So there's a ton of really interesting and critical issues that are outside that time scope, like, uh, you know, what will we do with killer robots uh, we really didn't look at that question at all. So if you're interested in killer robots, I would tell you uh, you can remain interested in it, but you're not going to find a lot of it if any. Right, you, go, this you can go see Terminator, you're right? You can see that somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, because what we were interested in is how do we really get to practical implementation of AI and the kinds of things government is doing today? Now, there's some of that that's out there. Some of, some of it's known. Some of it is less well-known, uh, but things like Project Maven, uh, there's been some discussion about using AI, F-35 for logistics. Uh, these things, it's, it's known that there's some progress being made in these areas. Uh, and the question is, how does that really show up? How is it effectively used? What kind of a difference can it make? Uh, and interestingly enough, what we found is it's still very early days in this technology. Uh, there's kind of a perception that AI has arrived uh, you know, if my if Siri on my phone works, then can, one can only imagine what the government must have and its capabilities. But the reality is that, you know, we are still in the very early stages of having a meaningful capability delivered by AI that exceeds what humans on their own can do. Um, and in fact, it, uh, one could even argue at this point, does what we have in terms of AI yeah. exceed what humans on their own could do? Uh, but on the other hand, it's pretty clear that there is a that's coming. Right, that this there will be real significant AI capabilities that are going to do things that humans are on their own aren't able to do, and there's kind of a massive global scramble uh, to get there first uh, and to be in control of this in some way. Interestingly, one of our findings is that uh, at least in terms of the next, the near term, most of these solutions are so context specific and application specific. Right, they're they are focused on the thing that they're trying to do. And the same algorithm doesn't really work if you try to get it to do anything else. There's not a lot of universality to most of these algorithms. They're very specific to what they're trying so to do. So a sensor might be very specific to a particular reading a particular e- e- pro, you know, uh, item or building or, or something like that. Yeah. And if you move it or put it on a different building, it's not going to work at all kind of thing. It, Is that- it may give you a totally different outcome. Yeah. You know, even having it at a different angle might give you a different Outcome, And it may not be able to recognize anything at an inclination of 30 degrees that it was able to recognize with almost 100% accuracy at an inclination of 45 degrees. That's how problem and context dependent some of these capabilities are. Not all, but many of them. 
And so, you know, what that says is it's less about dominating an individual AI technology, and it's more about having the ability to generate AI capabilities uh, that are powerful and 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 enough volume to have an impact. And so that's where we brought in this idea of the AI ecosystem. So what we're essentially saying at this stage of the game, it's more important that you have the people, the computing power, the networking, the policies uh, in place to generate AI than it is that you be the first or the the biggest investor in any specific AI technology. Right. So so what I hear you talking about is when you talk about the computing power, that's the cloud piece of it. The security is the cyber piece of it. People seems to me that's the huge piece of it, right? We're using our intelligence to create artificial intelligence, right? Yeah, um, because the AI only brings a part of the answer, a part of the solution. Uh, and we don't see a, a time when that's not going to be true. So although the concern is about AI capabilities that are fully autonomous that we can't control, the real problem you face when you're trying to do an AI application is the AI only gets you so far, and it's the people that have to take you the rest of the way to deliver a real meaningful capability. And that's where we have a real problem because we've got to generate those people. We've got to create those people. They aren't out there. Uh, they're hard to find. Uh, and not only do we need the worker bees, you know, the millennials with the hoodies who understand this stuff, uh, but you need the middle managers and the senior leaders who are going to commit to using some of this stuff, even though they may have only a passing understanding of how it really works. Right. And another thing that you, that your report talks about trust. What, 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 in what context is that? I mean, trust. It's a big word. That's a big word. Trust is that if uh, if a capability is given to me, that's an AI capability, and it's advertised that it has a performance, 95% of the time it's going to identify the right target, and 95% of the time it's going to uh, deliver the optimized solution to whatever it is I'm trying to do, that that's what it really does, that I can rely on it, that as a, you know, as a person engaged in a high-consequence activity, whether that's identifying a threat or it's uh, trying to optimize a, a chain of logistics a supply chain, uh, that I am confident enough that the AI is doing what I was told it was going to do, that I'm going to bet my career on its success as a senior leader. All right. So you have these these characteristics of the ecosystem. Some recommendations on, you know, what are the key to get there? Like what would you, to get people, the right people in place to, you know, improve the ability, uh, you know, the computing capability that seems to me acquisition reform, perhaps. But what, what are some of the key recommendations that your report made in those areas? Well, the key idea that we talk about there is is, is debt, uh, sort of what we call startup debt. Uh, and there's two main kinds we deal with. There's technical debt and there's workforce debt. And, and that means that we have deficiencies in our capabilities to, to deliver computing power in a, in a size and fashion that's required for AI to users – uh, and and to network users with enough information so that they can get the data and protect the data that they need to use AI. Uh, and then the users themselves, right? There's a huge workforce deficit to have the people with the sophistication and the understanding to do it. So our main, uh, our main recommendation is there is a tremendous debt here and you need to pay that debt down. Now, that's going to be a real inhibition for a lot of, of people in the Department of Defense because they're going to say, look, if I've got to make an upfront investment of however many billions of dollars, and I don't get a real return of capability on that until I've paid that down, and then I start to accumulate actual positive outcomes, that's going to be a huge barrier for a lot of folks in the department. And we think that debt is worth taking on and worth paying to ultimately get that deliverable. 
Uh, but I think there's going to be parts of the government that ultimately say, you know what, we lost interest <laughs> when right. you started talking about this debt. Now, a big piece of the of the solution, as you kind of hinted at, is you know cloud computing, right? I mean, the reality is that there's almost infinite computing power available uh, to anyone with a network connection because they can go to the cloud and they can buy it uh, at relatively inexpensive rates. Uh, but that's where you see that this this uh, this controversy over cloud really really underlays a lot of the controversy out of shifting to a next generation set of technologies and the strategy. Yeah, and there'll be you know be there'll be winners and losers, and that's what everybody's you know trying to trying to address, right? That's what that's keep a, life interesting. Yeah, isn't absolutely. It? Um, so you've given us you know, and paying that debt down. It seems to me that's that's a leadership issue, but also it's almost I put my government hat on. That's a, from a I mean, it's what are your performance measures? Yeah. Right? What are you measuring people on? If you're measuring them on the immediate return as opposed to long term goals. Then you're you're absolutely right. People are saying are going to lose interest because I'm not meeting what I've been incentivized to meet. Right? That's right. Uh, um, got about a minute left. I, I meant to. I w- you gave us some recommendations, so we checked that box about things to do. I just got a minute on OTAs, other transactions authority. Um, I, where are you seen? I think you've you've cataloged some huge growth. Can you just yeah. give us numbers? I I wish we could had more time. We could talk in depth about them. Yeah. Well, you know, I talked about contracting growth of the last two years, about 13% increase, which is robust and exceeded our expectations. OTA growth, uh, by comparison, has been explosive. 195% increase in OTAs over the last two years. Now, admittedly, that's coming off a pretty low base. Yes. Uh, it was it was a low number to start that's with. That's the number of transactions? Uh, that's in terms of dollar value. Oh, okay. That's the real number. Real yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so now, one thing that's important to say is our data right now is good through FY17. So, you know, we're, we're now at the end of uh, uh, 2018, moving mm-hmm. into 2019. So uh, there's, there's, there's a lot that's happened since then. And what happened through the end of 2017 was largely shaped and determined by the last administration, uh, because you know it's, it's taken a while for this administration to get folks in place in 2017 to set a new course, and so that growth in OTAs really happened in the context of an administration that was a little more skeptical of OTAs. Now you've got a lot of uh, of OTA uh, fans in positions of senior leadership who are pushing even harder to get these things implemented. So I think that 194 percent. 195% growth is going to probably continue at a pretty rapid clip coming forward. Right. The ball's not bounce, bouncing down for, that the, for those, right? Yeah. Down. Um, and, and I'm going to have to have you come back on the show. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make this a regular deal. Um, great stuff. Uh, I want to thank my guest today, Andrew Hunter. Andrew is the Director of Defense Industrial Initiatives Group and a Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 